Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now. And the Here and Now is our first podcast of 2016. So Happy New Year, everybody. I'm Raghu Marcus, and we have a terrific talk that we excerpted. It's actually uh, from just after Maharaji left that body in 1973 in September. Ramdas uh, started, I guess, a, uh, a, a speaking tour, and uh, he stopped in Pensacola, and he uh, talks here about, uh, there's some great stuff here about love and what Maharaji represents in truth beyond that package, as Ramdas calls it. It's kind of cute, he says. Yeah, we could... Uh, we could have been talking about, instead of Neem Karoli Baba, we could have talked about that package that Maharaji came in with, because what he is is truly beyond the physical attributes, although they were wildly fun, let me, let me tell you. Um, but before we get into it, I want to tell you a few of the things that are coming up in ramdanramdas.org through the Love, Serve, Remember Foundation. We're going to reintroduce that meditation and mindfulness course that we had last summer. We've rejiggered it a little bit, mostly around guidelines to help everyone use it even more efficiently for your daily sadhana, spiritual work. So take a look for that. You can go to ramdas.org. There'll be a banner there and you can sign up. And those of you who did not take advantage of it last year, please do. I think it'll be, uh, it is very effective. We had uh, a lot of great feedback from people and how it helped daily practice. We also have coming up in February, we will have the uh, video package from the spring retreat last year cultivating the courage to love and that was with ramdas and roshi joan halifax and krishna das and mirabai no mirabai wasn't there sorry about that but mirabai this is a good segue and that is that this spring there'll be a new retreat which has just been announced ramdas and mirabai bush will be there uh, alongside of somebody who's first time at one of our big Napili retreats, Lama Suryadas, who was with us in India with Maharaji and then has spent many, many, many years uh, uh, practicing Tibetan Buddhism and uh, has... Uh, he has incredible stories, by the way, of being with some of the most uh, exalted teachers, Rinpoche's, from Karmapa. Let's start with Karmapa, who, in my mind, was absolutely no different from Maharaji. Who else is going to be there? Trevor Hall. Those of you who know Trevor, who's this uh, beautiful singer-songwriter that is a devotee of Neem Karoli Baba, of Maharaji, and does a lot of music uh, with uh, devotional lyric towards Maharaji. It's just beautiful. And uh, Duncan Trussell is making a return, and he and I are going to do some 
podcast with Ramdas. It'll be pretty interesting. And Benji Wertheimer and Chantala will be doing a very special program with my beautiful wife, Saraswati Marcus, a music and yoga program every morning. So look forward to that. And if you can make it, uh, it'll be a, a wonderful time. So that's some of the things. We have lots of stuff coming up, which I'll keep you in the know as we go along through the year here. So this talk, I'm going to call it More Profound Than Miracles. As Ramdas talks about some of the, the miracles, uh, he, he mentions one in particular, which uh, is one of those outlandish ones where Maharaji bilocates. And I'll leave you to listen to Ramdas describe it. But more important to me is the, what he says here, which is more profound than the miracles, was the quality of of presence, of unconditional love. It was so intense, it cut through all uh, feelings of separation, paranoia, whatever you might have going on in your mind. That was more profound, a miracle. And of course, that's been well documented. And, and now, of course, in this book, Love Everyone, you can hear everybody's stories that that really, really elucidate just this power of the presence of unconditional love. And everybody has had that experience who, who was around him, not just physically, but after he left that body. People have the same kind of experience. Um, so in talking about that and in describing that, he makes a reference when two people are in love, they are meeting in the space where they are love. So when that happens to us, of course, we think it's that person who is representing that love to us and we are joining with that love. But really, it's in us. It's a reflection that we are that love. And the problem, or before I get into the problem, uh, he talks about imagining a place where someone is living in that presence all the time with everyone. Everyone you look at from that place is your beloved. A conscious being is that beloved. That was why it was so magnetizing to be around Maharaji because that's the only thing that was going on. And there was no conditions, there was no attachment, there was nothing. Now, when I said the but a little bit ago, in reference to how we fall in love, which is the example Ramdas is using with another person, unfortunately, because we are putting that presence off onto another person, they can't always fulfill it. So the truth is, of course, we are all conditional lovers. And without certain conditions, that love stops being reflected eventually. Of course, in the very beginning, it's pure. And sometimes we can recognize that that is not just 
outside ourselves, that love that we feel, we can recognize a tiny, tiny bit, perhaps, that it is inside ourselves. We get that feeling. And I shouldn't even say a tiny bit. I mean, we do feel it. And that's the place where uh, once we can recognize that and translate it to the kinds of experiences we've had, either it might be through a psychedelic or through a piece of music or just a, a meditative moment, a contemplative moment, moment, and then we can trust that space that we did share with that other person that we have these intense feelings of love for. So, uh, in the rest of this talk, so Ramdas sets up the the idea that of what Maharaji is represented by this unconditional love and how he represents that unconditional love and examples of how we ourselves experience that that love through another person and how we can uh, experience it to the point we, we can trust it inside ourselves, which is tremendously important, of course, to love ourselves, and then experience that unconditional love, which ultimately we do have and we are. And um, so then he starts to talk about what to do about getting to that place uh, and dealing with thoughts and emotions and attachments. And, um, and he talks about it's not a matter of destroying body, thoughts, or emotions. It's to get beyond the attachments to the thoughts and emotions. So it gives a, a path to getting to that place where we can actually start to live in or uh, maybe that's a little bit going a little too far in terms of actually living and being it. That, that's a tremendous amount of practice and work and lifetimes. But just understanding that it is possible and the moments that we do feel that unconditional love around us. And, and the best example that I can think of is when we were with Maharaji we had that feeling between us. It was so powerful in that moment that we were, we realized, oh my God, everybody here I feel the same about. I feel that depth of unconditional love. We may not have known the words for it, but the feeling was there. What are the qualities of a being who has extracted themselves from being caught in the particular illusion we were born into? Uh, once a person has started to awaken, you can no longer make believe you are asleep. So that's a reference to uh, Gurdjieff. Uh, Ramdas uh, mentions this and says, once you recognize what your predicament is, you can't make believe you did not recognize it. And that's what I mean going back to once we recognize that love and we've experienced it in whatever way possible, then we can trust that and know that it, we will keep moving forward into that presence. Once we recognize where we're stuck, and once we recognize what the possibilities are, trust that you will not go back to being 
uh, in the dark. It's once you've seen the light, it's just like that's like a, a one of those spiritual uh, songs, right, from the old days. Once I've seen the light, you can never go back to being completely in darkness. Can you imagine the possibility that in every one of us there is this one Atman? It's called in his Hinduism. This one reflects from inside out. This one is like the sun and it reflects from inside out through all these veils of thought identity and concept. Again, once you recognize the one in whatever way, shape, or form, trust that you will be propelled forward from that time on consciously knowing that it is a reality for us to be able to live in some kind of unconditional love, not obviously, not looking to be like Maharaji 24-7. Eventually, of course, that is our destiny. But that's like maybe way too big an ask in this moment. I mean, for me it is. I look for those moments where I have experienced that unconditionality around me and I'm not stuck in thinking of myself and thinking of my self-interest or my self-cherishing, as the Buddhists put it. And then I begin to trust that moment. And the more that trust happens, it turns into a faith that we are all being guided. And, uh, and the recognition of that, you can never turn back from. So uh, it's, it's a great talk in the way that Ramdas sets up the paradigm for unconditional love through using Maharaji as an example. And using the miracles as an example of, of they really are a lesser miracle than this miracle of, of unconditional love presence. And uh, I don't know how many times he said it that when he came back from India, he realized later that it was that miracle. Well, that's why the book is called Miracle of Love. But that was the real miracle, and that the other miracles were just uh, a matter of breaking down the mind. And that's not just what happens. You f- start to relate with seeing, with life, and, and the daily things that happen to us. And when you can start to see them ha- as perfection in allowing us to grow, to transform and some of them are not fun, and some of them are not pretty, and there's obviously day-to-day suffering involved. But when you start to realize that these events in your life are perfectly designed for that growth, and uh, you start to trust that, that is the guru. So let's move forward here and... And listen to this talk again. It's from 1973, just after Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba left his body and Ramdas started uh, teaching again. Uh, this is after that whole period of when we were all in India for that uh, three and a half years. Uh, 
some longer, some shorter. And uh, so Ramdas, here and now, the title of this, I'm looking it up because I just made this up, More Profound Than Miracles. See you next week. It's like one day Maharaji and I go to a, um, I, go, I go with a group of people in my Volkswagen to visit a little temple. Because Maharaji says, don't come until one o'clock. Maharaji means great king. It's just a name given to holy men. Many holy men are called Maharaji. It's not the Chota Maharaji, the guru, 15-year-old, now 16-year-old, wrote. And on the way back from the temple, the car won't get up a hill. So I say to everybody, get out and push. And everybody gets out but the three women. And I think, why don't they get out and push? They're healthy. But they don't, and I don't say anything because I'm very well-bred. And we get back to the temple, and we walk into the temple. Maharaji looks at us, and he says, Ramdas is angry. Everybody says, no, he's not angry. Yes, Ramdas is angry. The women wouldn't get out and push. Now, he did that to me roughly every day. That is, every day he was showing me there was no bathroom I could go into and lock the door and say, now at least I've gotten rid of him. You know? There was no veil I could put up with my mind to make sure I would not be observed. There was no possibility of clandestine behavior, clandestine behavior. But there was no way he would let me control it. I love this way he would play with me. At one point, I brought a very uh, nice person from America, and I wanted this person to be impressed by my guru. See, so I brought him to my guru so my guru would snow him. Maharaji says to him, you come from America? Yes. Oh, you're from New York. No, Maharaji, I'm from California. You have a sister that's very spiritual. No, Maharaji, I'm an only child. You're going to be a good lawyer. Well, actually, I'm an architect, Maharaji. And I'm sitting thinking, why doesn't he shut up? If he doesn't know, why does he make, you know, why doesn't he keep quiet? I'm freaking, you know. And the guy goes away, and the guy says, you got a nice guru, you know. You got a nice guru, He was always playing with me. He would be a total driveling idiot for weeks. And just as, as I, just when I got to the point where I decided I'd been had, you know that point you can take just so much and then you figure, okay, I was wrong, you know, I made a mistake the first time. And this guy is, you know, he's getting senile at least. I mean, he's lost his powers. Just then he'd do something that would be so far out that as far out as I could see how it was, He'd be sitting with like saying, don't you get it? He was always like way, way out there. Now, there are literally thousands of, quote, guru stories in India. Thousands and thousands of them. In fact, in India, in a little village where they have no electricity, and they have no cars to go anywhere. So they sit around evenings by the coal brazier, singing holy songs, which we will all be doing soon. 
they're very happy, so don't worry. <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> As the energy crunch gets heavier, believe me, it gets lighter. <laughs> this is the spirit being handed back to us through disaster. And um, they sit around and they tell stories about the gurus. This far out delightful one I think I just told here yesterday, maybe. Some friends here in Pensacola. About Maharaji and his and the barber. There was a barber in a village in India. I just found this out. I just went back from my guru's funeral. He just left his body. And we were telling stories, and they told me the story that there was a barber in a village who ten years before his son had run away. And he wanted to know where his son was. So every holy man that came through town, he'd invite him in for free shave. And when he was shaving him, he'd say, say, do you know where my son is? And the holy man at the end of the shave would say, well, don't worry, your son will come back. So one day Maharaji came through town and this man invited Maharaji in for a free shave. And he lathered up Maharaji's face and he started to shave him. And he told Maharaji about his, the son being missing, just as the face was half shaven. And Maharaji indicated he had to go to the toilet, the symbol being this. And he got up and he went rushing out. About two minutes later, he came back in and sat down. They finished the shave. And Maharaji said to him, don't worry, your son will come back. And he left, just like all the other home. And the next day, the son arrived. The father said, what are you doing here? The son said, well, I'm uh, a manager at a hotel now in a village that's about 200 miles from here. And he said, yesterday I was standing behind the desk of the hotel and this man rushed in frantically and he had half shaving lather and he was half shaved. And he rushed in and he said, your father wants you. Here's the money, go quickly. And he ran out again. Now, what are you going to do with a story like that? I mean, it's... <laughs> It's, it's like a Marx Brothers story, isn't it? I mean, first of all, why would he do it in such a bizarre way? You know, I mean, he could have done it many ways. Why in such a peculiar way? That? Just, I guess, so we can tell the story now. But more, even more profound, although much less able to be talked about, than the miracles that are performed by people like Maharaji, is a quality of their presence, a quality of the kind of unconditional love that we are not used to, that is so intense that it just completely, um, when you're ready, it just cuts through your paranoia and you just, you just turn into like liquid love. You just can't stand it. It's just so, so intense, the love is so intense. Now, let me describe what that love, let me talk about love for one second. When you say, I fall in love with somebody, I'm in love with her, let's say. Another way of saying that is 
she is a stimulus which turns me on, which connects me, allows me to connect to the place in myself where I am loved. And when two people are, quote, in love with each other, they are each turning each other on to the place in themselves where they are in love. And when two people are in love, that means they are meeting in the space of love. And what happens to us is we get hooked on our connection, just like any junkie. And you're in love with her or with him, and you think it's the her or the him when actually the love is the state of your own being. It's just that they are your connection to open it because they love, they see you in a certain way and they allow you to see yourself in a certain way and they allow you to touch a place in yourself. Now imagine, if that place is in us, what it means for somebody who is living in that place all the time. Not only with any one person, but say with everybody. You're in the bizarre predicament that everybody you look at is your beloved. Now that could be, you know, that could be a sticky wicket. Like, what are you going to do with everybody? You know, you get on a bus and you walk down the bus and you look at, like, I get on a bus in New York, you know, and there'll be a woman carrying packages and she's tired and she's had a heavy day and she's just going home. She's probably been cleaning somebody's house or something like that. And I'm walking back through the bus and I look at her. And our eyes meet. And first, her first reaction is total paranoia. Like, what do you want from me? You're going to hustle me, rape me, mug me, steal my pocketbook. What do you got in mind? You know? But if you don't want anything, you're just sitting right in this space. Like, here we are. And every now and then you meet somebody like this woman I'm talking about who goes through her paranoia just like that because there's nothing in you that makes it stick. And she comes right to the place of, you know, like here we are. And suddenly you've got another lover. But what do you do about it? You don't rush up and say, how do you do? <laughs> you know, or you don't marry them or live with them forever after or something. You just keep walking down the bus. Because it only takes that moment to recognize another being in the space. And a, a conscious being is, is that space, is that space, is like a beloved, is like a being sitting there in love with you. No attachment, no conditions, not conditional, and not I'll love you if you're this way or that way, just love. And it's a very incredible thing to come up with somebody, towards somebody who's an unconditional lover. Because all of us are conditional lovers, I assure you. There are limits under which we will not love. Because we all are protecting our separateness. Now isn't this being that I'm talking about protecting his separateness? No, because... He isn't that at all. He isn't on channel 7 only. Now there are these different planes of consciousness. You start out with your senses, your eyes, your nose, your ears, your mouth, your skin, and your thinking mind. 
And all of that is tuned to channel 7. And then through some way or other, maybe through trauma or having a baby or something, some dramatic thing that happens to you, you flip into another channel. That is, you start to know the universe through other than your eyes, nose, mouth, ears, skin, and thought. You come into another way of knowing the universe. For example, there is a meditation called Vichara Atma, Who Am I? And you sit down, you have the discipline, you say, I am not this body. And you experience the legs as objects, and the arms as objects, and the torso as object, and the whole body as object. And you're sitting in the body as you would be sitting in your Ford or your Volkswagen. And then who is it that is sitting inside the Volkswagen? Well, you figure it's your thoughts, your thinking mind, your cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. But ready for the next one? The next statement is, I am not the thought of I. That is, you're not even your thinking mind. You know, you wake up in the morning and you go through the following things. You wake up, I don't know what you go through, but I usually go through, I gotta go to the bathroom. Oh, it's warm in here. I can wait a few more minutes. I smell coffee. What's that noise outside? Oh, I got so many things to do today. Gee, I wonder if that toe is better. Gee, I've got to go to the bathroom. What was that dream I was just having? Etc. Etc. See, your mind starts all day like a trip hammer. Look at this. Look at that. What's that? Where's that? Ooh, yes. I got to read this. Study that. Think that. What the? Look. Listen. Feel. Sense. Taste. Touch. Think. 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 Remember. Remember. Plan. Plan. Think. Remember. Plan. Sense. Hear. See. Smell. Taste. Feel. Right. It's roughly going. You know how fast it's going. It's going. 17 trillion mind moments per blink of an eye. That's the rate at which the is going. Okay. And it's like a total tyranny. Because it's so, your thoughts are so seductive, you begin to think you are them. So when you're eating, who are you at that moment? You're like for me with pizza, which is my thing. When I'm eating pizza, I'm a pizza eater. You came to me and said, excuse me, sir, could you tell me who you are? Like, I'm a pizza eater at that moment. That's who I am, you know. I mean, I'm totally involved in my sense experience. And most people just go from one thing to another, to another. When they're worried, they're worried. Mr. Worry and Mrs. Anxiety and Sam Depression and <laughs> Frida Elation and, you know, everybody's got their trip. You know, and everybody is totally consuming all the emotional states. They're real. They certainly are real. States are real after all. 
and they're all just thoughts. Vivekananda said, our thinking mind is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. It's great to have that mind available to do all the stuff it does, but it's terrible to be caught in it, so you can't stop thinking. Do you ever notice you can't stop thinking? Now, the funny thing is that you can't stop thought, but you can stop thinking. It's like you don't stop the hamburger machine, but you can stop eating hamburgers. The thought machine keeps going on. It's just running on. It's just a totally mechanical. It's totally mechanistic. If you give a strong stimulus there, it'll point. If you stick a needle in there, it'll attend there. It'll, it'll always go. There are total laws as to where the attention goes and how it goes to this thought and that thought and so on. It's all mechanistic. And that mechanistic thing goes on completely. And behind it all, here we are. Now that's far out. That when you go in behind your thought, if you can get, if you have the discipline in doing that, who am I to say, I am not this body, I am not these senses, I am not this thought, I am not the thought of I, then what's left is what you then become. Like, the problem isn't destroying the body, you don't bang or boom. The problem is getting free of being attached to the body. The problem isn't destroying thought or emotions. Those are all part of your incarnation. They're part of the package. They're part of the flow. The game is to get free of being attached to them. You honor them, you take care of them, you do them. Here's this body, here's this personality, here are these emotions, there's depression, there's elation. Far out, look at all this stuff. And behind it all, here I am. Not even the thought, here I am, but here I am. Watch it. See, the predicament is that when you go back into that place, there's nothing that can be said about it. Because there's talk about it, you've got to come down into the place to talk where talking is, which is at the level of thought. So we can only talk about the place, but we can't talk from it. Because another way of saying it here, here I is, or isness is, isness is. Now, what are the qualities of a being who has extricated themselves from being caught in the particular illusion we were born into? Because everybody in this room the quality of us on this plane is we all took a human birth on the physical plane, a physical, psychological plane, set of planes. And the reason we did this was because we had certain desires. And those desires made it necessary for us to take birth here. And we will keep taking birth here and keep staying stuck here until we awaken to our own predicament, which is what is called awakening, strangely enough. And as Gurdjieff says, you can't... Once a person has started to awaken, you can no longer make believe you're asleep. You can make believe you're asleep, but you can't get back to sleep fully. Like once the process has started where you recognize what your predicament is, 
what you recognize what you're doing in this body and in this mind and in these emotions you can't make believe you didn't recognize it in other words once you've started to awaken into the being you can't go back to being a pure pizza eater again so you see you sit down and you start to eat the pizza and you're and then a voice says eating pizza and that voice isn't saying you're bad or you're good that's more stuff it's just noticing it's a place inside that's like a huge eye it's a single eye it's one eye that's a big witness and it's just noticing your whole life dance eating pizza depressed trying to get holy <laughs> lecturing itchy it's noticing it all it's not attached it's not trying to change anything it's not trying to get you high or anything it's just sitting in there it's always been sitting in there and slowly the process is this kind of irrevocable thing that starts to happen to you where more and more you develop this place in you which is just sitting noticing how it all is you know how when you had a game you played as a child and then you get so old the game loses its savor and you play it with a kid and the kid gets completely lost in it but you're just sort of sitting playing it well that's sort of what starts to happen to life you go on doing it all but you're sort of sitting behind it they talk about the candle being put in a niche in the heart where the winds of desire no longer make the flame flicker which is both horrible and beautiful because to the extent that you have a romantic model of yourself and the world that you're trying to retain this is hell because a romantic wants to keep the ah and the oh and the mm, and the oh don't you you want a few more rushes out of life what happens if every pizza is like every other one and it's all beautiful or horrible or everything and it's all here and here we are behind it all just right you here I'm here far out look at all this it's called the horrible beauty the horrible beauty now there are some very far out qualities of this space of consciousness behind the thinking mind that uh, are certainly are worthy of notice that there are many planes of thought more and more subtle that are called astral planes and causal planes those are all still planes of thought but behind the thinking mind that space in that space there is only one of the thing that is there aren't many beings because many would already be more thought more stuff there's only one of it so that the far out thing is and this is straight on as far as well as I can understand it at this point and my experiences corroborated as well as I am developed that if you go in yourself far enough back not only do you and I meet if I go back in myself far enough but there's only one of us there's not even two of us it's not hello are you there 
It's well, whatever one says to itself. It doesn't say anything to itself, actually. Because it doesn't know itself, because it just is. Like when you get far enough back in, you can only be, you can't know anything, because knowing already takes an object, you've got to know something. But when you go back to this one, you're just sitting as one. Now that's pretty strange. And can you imagine the possibility that in every one of us is this one, which in Hinduism is called the Atman. And that this one, which is like a sun, reflects from inside out through these veils and veils and veils and veils of thought and identity and concept and all this stuff, and they end up being way, way out here and you think you are who you think you are. And when you die, the only thing that will die, it turns out, is the thought you have of who you think you are. That's all it does. Isn't that bizarre? Like, you just flipped off channel 7. And you die, and now here I am in channel 5. Far out, where's my body? Oh, you get this other body now. You had it all along. Like when I go to India, I go to my guru and he tells me things that happened in America. Like in these in the old days, if I was sitting here and then I got on a plane and you said to me, I want to test it. Now let's say he would allow the test to happen, which instead of screwing around, which he's prone to do. But So you say, ask him how much two and two is. So I get on a plane and I go to India and I go up into the mountains and I come to this little old man and I stand in front of him and he says to me, four. <coughs> Now, how did he know that? How do you suppose he knew? Did he just read my mind? Let's say I wasn't even thinking. I forgot all about my assignment. I was just blown out by being at his feet. And he says, four. I say, what? He says, four, four, four. I say, I don't know what you're talking about. And then a week later, I remember, oh, that's what it's time. So he's not reading my mind at that level. How do you explain that? Well, if you, I'll give you the explanation. It, it may boggle you a bit, but it's okay. Go back into that place behind thought. Behind all the planes of thought. Now there is another quality about that place. It is behind time and behind space. Because those are matrices that exist on these planes where thought is. So where he is, past, present, and future, and here and there, all are. Not only all are, but he is. It is so far out that he is literally the number four in your mouth. It's the same thing that is if you experience something in your arm, you're experiencing it within what you call yourself. And all of this, the entire universe, would be within himself if there were a demarcation at all. 
Now, it isn't the guy in the blanket in India that is that one. You realize that. That's only the package on channel seven. And what happens is often you get hooked on the packages. Oh, package, I worship you. You know, your plastic is so beautiful and your labeling is so great and all your seams are wonderful. And you worship the package and you pray to it and you sing to it and you rub its feet. Oh, holy package. You know. And after a while, you get to the recognition that that was only the package. You've just been hustled again. And that behind the packaging, behind that next packaging, behind that next packaging, as far as you can see, you finally come to the place where when you can see it, because you can see it inside, there's only one of us. So you end up, what you were doing was worshiping yourself. That's pretty foreign. But it's not you as opposed to somebody else, because there's only one of it. So that what they say in India is, it turns out that God, Guru, and Self are all the same thing. So you enter into a path in which you are a pilgrim on a path to come to God. When you finish the path, you realize that in fact there really wasn't any goal. There wasn't any path. And there wasn't any pilgrim. Now I say there wasn't any because when you enter into that one, now imagine planets, for example, two planets. There's a little one and a big one. And the little one's coming towards the big one. Now at that point there are two. And so the little planet says, I am going towards the big one. You're going towards the one. Now let's say that this little one just goes and merges into the one. Now, inside the one, what is it like? Is the inside of the one saying, I am one? No, inside of one there just is. There's no one or two, there just is. Is what? Well, is nothing. Or is everything. Now the game's getting even farther out. If you don't mind my taking you out a little further. Because the predicament is, and this is the predicament of Buddhism, that all form, even the one, is another illusion. And in fact, nothing ever happened at all. And that's what is called the nirvanic state. When you enter into the place, which is the placeless place, total emptiness or fullness. It's called the void, but it's not empty. It's got everything in it, but there's nothing there. And in the final image, you see that form, all of this, and all the planes, and all the thoughts, and God, and heavenly host, and the demons, and all that stuff, and emptiness and void are exactly the same thing. They're just two different sides of the coin. They're the same exact thing. 
So you come to the realization, and this is that was a big leap, you come to the realization that there isn't anybody doing anything. There's just this stuff happening. Stuff happening. Life being lived, stuff happening. Laws, dharma, the law unfolding, the Tao unfolding. But nothing's really happening behind it all. So now you begin to sense what becoming enlightened is about. Because becoming enlightened literally means dying into the one which is zero. Which in fact means that when you become enlightened, since you never become enlightened, since you think you're somebody, when you give up thinking you're somebody, then what's left is enlightened. That is, you can get right up to the door, but you can never go through the door. See, that's the terrible predicament of people that are on the spiritual path. Because they get really good, and I've gotten holier and holier and holier, and I'm nearly going to get through the door. And you get right up to the door, and they say, uh-uh, you can't go through. What do you mean I can't go through? I'm pure. I'm thinking only of God. I'm holy. Yeah, but you're still you. And there's only room for one on the other side of the door. Sorry, you've got to leave yourself behind. Well, what's the fun of going through the door? Ah, there's the rub. Well, I think I'll stay on this side of the door for a while. I'll enjoy being right next to the door, okay? And that's where most people sit for incarnation after incarnation after incarnation. Because it's so nice to be nuzzling up against the door but still be somebody. And you get really good at it. I mean, this isn't gross stuff. This isn't, I'm near the door. It isn't that level. I mean, like my uh, Aldous Huxley, very dear friend. Alan Watts, lots of friends, people I know who I admire and respect. Gerald Hurd is people of very high spiritual development. Still, all got up to the door and they stayed around because for an intellectual, the delight in knowing you know almost everything even though it's not I, Aldous Huxley, know, it's just extraordinary. <laughs> wow. Wow. You know. I mean, Aldous was so blown out by how clear his understanding was of the laws of the universe, because he was so little attached to anything except the delight in knowing that he was, his, he was practically down to one word. You know, I mean, you'd say to him, Aldous, look at that horseshit, and he'd say, you know, and you knew that he saw in that everything. He saw the entire universe everywhere he looked. And for the person that's on a devotional trip, oh, to get so close to the beloved, can you imagine that? To get so close to love itself, but you realize if you go through the door, it's like at the moment of orgasm, there isn't any more beloved. See? And you want to stay. It's like a long, it's like an extenuated foreplay. How long can you make it last? Ten lifetimes? A thousand lifetimes? You know. How long can you keep it going? See? Because once the orgasm occurs, that's it. There's no you, there's no me, there's no nothing. There's just <laughs> and that was the end of that. So we're all hastening towards the place, but not too fast would be the way of saying it. <laughs> we want it, but we don't want what we want just yet. 
But in the meantime, for most of us, there's still plenty of stuff to do before we nuzzle up to the door. Because there's still a lot of times when we really think we're on Channel 7. We're really taking our melodrama seriously. You really think your storyline's real. I've had this terrible, I got this exam tomorrow on it. <laughs> that should do it for you. It's like I can say to you, but many of you can't hear it, but I can say to you, that as I sit up talking to you, the statement, I am sitting up talking to you, is a total lie. That's part of that which is sitting up talking to you. And if I was sitting in my camper meditating, it would be exactly the same space I would be in as sitting here talking to you. That is, it's like a movie going by, if you will. There's talking to. There's empty. And what is watching the movie is just sitting. And the interesting thing is that even the watcher is starting to disappear. Which means more and more of the time there is less and less of anything. At that point there just becomes function. See, the quality of my guru is that there is nowhere where he isn't and there is nowhere where he is. That is, there isn't anybody by our definition of somebodyness. There's a body, but that isn't what it is. But the body is filling a function. And it's got a personality, and that's filling a function. And can you imagine that your personality and your body are all parts of your package, and they aren't who you are? See, like people say to me, uh, is therapy good? Is it useful? And I say, well, it's fine as long as your therapist doesn't think they're a therapist. Because if your therapist thinks he's a therapist or she's a therapist, then you have to be a patient. Because in the room, there's only room for two of you. I could say it even more profoundly. If your therapist thinks personality is real, watch out. Because he's going to get you thinking personality is real. And all he'll do is help you substitute one ego structure for another one. But the minute you are starting to become conscious, you can work with a therapist who still thinks personality is real and use that for your body and fender repair work on your personality without buying the whole model of the, of the therapist. And the answer is, if the therapist thinks they're Buddha, you'll get enlightened. Or rather, if the therapist is Buddha, because Buddha doesn't think it's Buddha, Buddha just is Buddha. Which leads to a bizarre conclusion, by the way, about how people change in relation to one another. Which is, I'll lay it out, although it may be hard to buy in. What you do for another human being is 
share your being. That's all you do. The stuff you think you are doing is just stuff you think you are doing. Now, this is a tricky one. It's like I could say all this stuff to you, but you can only hear of it that which not only you are ready to hear, but which I am saying from a certain level of my being. If I say it from a very superficial level, it won't do anybody any good. That is, what we actually teach or transmit to each other is our own level of evolution. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.